0: Well, my special guest today is knitting designer Annie Modisett who was also my guest, well, just over four years ago, Annie, that we spoke then. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Also, there will be a link to that older interview, our first interview, in the show notes, if anyone wants to uh, have a listen to that. Obviously, a lot lot's happened in four years, not least the fact that you've moved house
1: Yes, we have. We have. We have We have up sticks and moved. And uh, I actually, geez Louise, about four years ago, I came out here to Minnesota from New Jersey where I lived. I, I came out here to Minnesota to teach at this event. And I, I just absolutely fell in love with Minnesota. I, I couldn't believe how much I loved it just in the week I was here. And I called my husband and I said, honey, we have got to think about moving out here because the, the people are amazing and it's, it's beautiful and, and they got winter a lot and we love winter. And so um, we, we thought about it very carefully and, and we weighed the options and we came out here for uh, vacation and we just decided to move here. So we did. We sold our house and it sold relatively quickly. We sold very lucky right at the beginning of, of, of the down market in the States. And um, um, moved ourselves out here to Minnesota. And that's that's
0: kind of when the fun began. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's one way to put it, isn't it? Yes, it, is. it that's, is. That's pretty much when Jerry's health problems began or began it, showing themselves. Exactly. And as we were moving, I had noticed that,
1: um, you know, funny thing, my husband wasn't helping me pack or anything. And I thought, well, this is really unlike him because he's usually a really helpful guy. So I did all the packing and I did all the moving and, you know, I I was getting really irritated with him at times, which I'm obviously very sorry for now.
0: He had a lot of back problems, didn't he? Back pain. His his back was killing him. He could barely, he could barely walk.
1: Some days his back hurt so badly. So we went to see a fine, fine American doctor. We went to see a fine doctor in New Jersey, a back doctor who insisted that Jerry have x-rays. He had the x-rays, and the doctor looked at them and said to Jerry, you have a back sprain. You need to do um, physical therapy. So he went and did physical therapy. In retrospect, we realized this was probably the worst thing he could have done because we think that's when he crushed uh, two of his vertebrae in his back Mm. because that was a very painful thing for him. And we moved out here to Minnesota, you know, right when all that was going on. And uh, a few weeks after we would moved here, um, he went to a, a new doctor that we, we got out here, and the new doctor took one look at him and was like, you have something going on. So she did x-rays and sent him to an endocrinologist and was doing all the stuff with him, and it came back that he has multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer, which sort of eats the bones from the inside out. It causes a lot of bone weakness and it's it usually it, usually people in their 60s or older get it so it was unusual that this guy who was 48 you know had developed multiple myeloma and um not to sound too dramatic but you know i i, I am i am kind of a, i'm a methodist drama queen and i do love the whole drama angle of it and i, I try to reap as much pity as possible whenever i, I tell this story but um if we were not in Minnesota, I don't think he'd be with us, to be honest, because mm-hmm. the, the level of health care here and, and the level of human care has been so high. Not that it wasn't high in New Jersey, but in New Jersey, we definitely felt like um, <clears throat> we felt individually as human beings we were less important, and it's probably because there are just so many people there. But here in Minnesota, we have the Mayo Clinic, and the motto of the Mayo Clinic is the needs of the patient come first, and I feel like that has sifted through the entire state. So we really haven't gone anywhere in the state for help that we haven't felt that, you know, that our needs as patient or as patient's family come first, which was kind of refreshing for all of us, for Ferry and I and the kids, because we hadn't had that experience, um, <clears throat> excuse me in previous uh, episodes in New Jersey, you know, with different health things. So he had a stem cell transplant down at the Mayo and um, God bless his union. He's in the stagehands union. They did not have to continue our coverage, but since he was considered disabled, they did continue the coverage on the health insurance coverage. So we've been covered for the past three years and they have not had to keep us in their pool. I mean, we have to pay for our coverage, but they pay for part of it too, and it's been really wonderful of them i I don't know what we would have done without that, and we just we're incredibly lucky. we are so lucky
0: because of what happened, Jerry, you ended up being the main breadwinner I did that wasn't the plan
1: you know it really was never the plan because i w- luckily, we are really frugal people, and we've kind of based our our whole marriage on keeping our lifestyle such that we can, we can live on one income because um, you know, not that it's not like I felt like it's important for a woman to stay home with the kids. I, I think you have to do what feels good to you as a, as a mom. And I always wanted the option to do whatever I wanted to do, but we know Jerry and I both, cause we both worked in the theater and we've both worked in, you know, freelance stuff that you can't count on two incomes in our kind of world. So we're just naturally very frugal people. Um, but but it was very difficult then because suddenly everything was on me the mortgage and 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 just all the stuff you know all the stuff and 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 it was it was just it was difficult to have such a sense of responsibility because he was not really in in a good shape to deal with things you know he was he was in really bad shape and we were told by the hospital up here in the Twin Cities University Hospital they told us that the prognosis for his disease at that time this was 2007 At that time, the prognosis was they would say two to three years, you know, at the state he was in, he was very far advanced. And when we went to the Mayo, they didn't say two to three, they said one to two. And my reaction was, well, you know, so much for the the second opinion, which we thought would be better. Well, obviously, it's been three years now, and he's going strong. They told us the last time we were at the Mayo Clinic, they said if they lined everybody up who's had a stem cell transplant for this disease he would be near the front of the line. He's doing so well. Uh, his his cancer numbers are very good. They're not uh, going up. They call it an M spike. He's not having any any rise in his M spike. The main thing he deals with, you know, on a regular basis is he has a great deal of pain, and he has a lot of exhaustion because of the pain. And the pain, that all stems from bone damage and breakage and crushed vertebrae and that sort of thing that happened before this was diagnosed. You know, so we... We continue to have a great deal of anger. I continue to have a great deal of anger toward the initial doctor we saw because when we went to the Mayo, we had to get together all of our paperwork and previous tests and that sort of thing to take to the Mayo. And so we had a copy of those initial x-rays with the report from the radiologist who wrote on the report possible myeloma. And when we looked at that, it's hard to experience, it's hard to express how, much pain I felt at that. I'm sure Jerry did too because I was like if if the doctor had only acted on that he wouldn't have sent him to get the stupid physical therapy that we think was really the, the nail in the coffin and breaking his back. He wouldn't we, he would have been diagnosed several months earlier and probably would have stopped a lot of the damage and then I look at the other side of it and I say if we knew he would have had cancer we would not have moved. I mean who picks their family up and moves them halfway across The United States, with no like family in the area, if we know someone has cancer, that's just not something you know people do. We would have stayed in the New York area because Jerry's family is there, but I'm positive we would have lost our house because our mortgage was higher there and our taxes. You're you're going to cringe when you hear this. Our taxes in New Jersey were fifteen thousand dollars a year, which um, I think is probably around. Twelve thousand pounds now with the way the exchange is, because the dollar is so weak, and that's what we paid a year for taxes, and that's not uncommon in New Jersey. It was, and and we did not have, we had the smallest house on the block. You know, we did not have a gigantic house, Um, but out here, everything is more realistic. The schools seem much better for the kids. Uh, The schools in New Jersey were brilliant. It wasn't that they were good, but weren't good. But the schools here, it's a really good fit for the kids. We can we can actually save a little bit of money out here because we can be very frugal. I ride my bike everywhere. You know, I have the car, but I don't use it except, you know, when I have to go to the big box store Costco and get, like, a big thing of paper towels. Usually I just ride my bike up to the market, you know, and it's, it's odd to say it, but here in the very center of the United States, we have a much more European lifestyle than anywhere else I've experienced in the United States. You know the mass transit's good. The schools are good. There's bike paths all over the place. It's it's
0: really great. And what's the knitting like there? Oh
1: man, it's the motherload. <laughs> Everybody's here. Everybody. everybody. Actually, it was very funny because as we were driving in to the to the city, you know the past the you know <laughs> driving into the city the first time, we had to pull over and do a knitting test. For them to allow all us to <laughs> move in. No, that, that's not true. That'd be great <laughs> if it was true, though. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But there are so many yarn stores here. Everyone nicer than the other. I mean, every yarn store I go into, I'm like, oh my god, I'm in Nirvana. They're wonderful. So many knitters here, and they're not just knitters. They're like, they're like, you know, professional league knitters. And the women in my knitting group, you know, they're 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 women who work at you know day jobs and they're they have they they're they're fascinating and interesting people and they have wonderful jobs engineers you know and scientists and, and when we get together to knit they are well most of them are better knitters than I am let me put it that way I am a designer but I'm not going to say I'm the best knitter around they are extraordinary knitters you know like three of them are doing boho things right now and one of them is doing a Vivian hawks bro wrap I mean they're rubbing knitters and when I go to a school event here I will always see at least two or three people knitting. You know, like if it's, a, if it's a band concert, there's always a couple of people knitting. They're always knitting really involved color work or cables or something really beautiful. And if I see someone with a beautiful sweater, we were at our temple recently, and this uh, fellow had this lovely sweater on, and I said, Oh, your sweater's gorgeous. And he said, Thank you. My wife knit yeah. it. I mean, you get that all the time. That's just what people do. They knit here. It's great. <laughs> I'm in heaven. <laughs> We we as a family miss New York a little bit. I mean, you know, we miss that energy and that flow, and you know, it, obviously we miss that. But it's more than made up for here by the, there's just a real sense of peace that we have here, which is very nice, and and you you can't buy that with anything.
0: Just out sort of interest, I was wondering, um, did you ever go to anything like uh, the New York Fashion Week events or anything like that when you were in that area?
1: I did. I did. I would go to those every now and then. You know, I couldn't get into any of the shows, but I would just go and hang out because there, there there, are shows in, in the tents. There are even better shows outside of the tents, just the people walking around. And sometimes when I was first designing, I would go and take things I was designing and I would just walk around wearing them. And then people would stop me and interview me like somebody with a little camera would interview me. So, so somewhere there's probably like video of me wearing a stupid hat from – you know, nineteen ninety nine or something at, at Fashion Week. But uh yeah, I, I would do that because I, I love I love fashion. I love the whole fashion thing. And I, I love to see people really uh really getting involved in what they love. I, I hate the politics that seems to be involved with a lot of fashion. But I love the idea that by draping things in a certain way you can make someone look look better.
0: You know, I, I love that. Because so I was remembering um that you've entered for Project Runway a couple of times? I did. I did. When we first moved here, I got my little portfolio together, and I got
1: my sample garments together, and I went to Chicago, and I applied for Project Runway, and I didn't even get past the second interviewer. You know, the woman looked at my portfolio, and she looked at what I had, and I had uh, two sewn dresses, and then I had a couple of knitted things, and she said, oh, we don't really do knitting. I'm like, no, no, but I sew, too. My, my degree's in costuming. I can cut and sew anything. And she was like, no, we, we don't really do knitting. And she passed on me. And I I think it was probably my portfolio, but I think more so it was the fact that I was, you know, let's face it. I was a 45-year-old, overweight, ma- mom-looking kind of person. And I think they wanted somebody who looked edgier, maybe thinner. I don't know. That's that's just that's just me talking. That's just my own insecurity talking. You know, in retrospect, it was very good that I didn't get accepted because I came home and it was two days after I came home that we heard the the actual diagnosis that Jerry had multiple myeloma. I had my reservations as to whether I should even go do the interview because Jerry's back was hurting so much. And he said, "Honey, go ahead and go. Whatever this is, you know, we'll work it out. And you know, if 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 you get on the show, it'll be so good for you. We'll we'll make it work." And so I, I went and I. Stayed with a really, really good friend of mine in um, in Chicago who was a knitter. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom, the knitter. Um, and he was great. But I just, I, I didn't get him. <laughs> Maybe I will someday when I'm 16.
0: Will you apply again?
1: I think I probably will. I It has not been right. The time hasn't been right with Jerry's health to do anything, you know, to even think about doing anything like that. And then this past year, I myself had a, a bit of a health uh, change. I had noticed the last couple of years that when I would travel to teach, I was just getting more and more tired and exhausted and had a lot of pain. And I just thought it was um, – I thought it was stress, to be honest. I thought it was stress. Yeah, and
0: plus traveling is tiring, tiring anyway, isn't it?
1: It's Yeah, yeah. But like I, on, on my blog, I, I was always mentioning that I would pretty much stopped flying and I would, I'd rather drive six hours than fly an hour because the act of – walking into the airport and carrying my bags and lifting them on and off of the the, the, the baggage thing and lifting them on and off of a, a rental car bus was so hard for me that I just couldn't do it because I hurt so much. So um, I had a, a trip in the U.K. last year, which was phenomenal, and I totally fell in love with Scotland, which I'd never visited before. Um, and then I, I I came home, and I had a trip out on the East Coast in October, which was a very rough trip for me. I was... I was just in pain and sick the whole time. It was a very hard trip for me. And I came home and I crawled into bed in October and I did not leave my bed until except like to go to the bathroom. I I seriously did not leave my bed or go downstairs like once on Thanksgiving for dinner. But I, I couldn't I couldn't get out and shop for Christmas. I couldn't I could hardly move. I had so much pain and it was terrifying. So they tested me for mono, they tested me for lupus, they tested me for all this stuff, and it's all negative, negative, negative. And we finally got in to see a rheumatologist on Christmas Eve, you know, because once again, I'm going for the pathos effect, you know, I'm thinking Christmas Eve, very pathetic. So I went to see a rheumatologist, and he did this pressure point sensitivity test on me and said, you have fibromyalgia. And and I said no, I don't. I have Lyme disease. That's what I have. so no, you have fibromyalgia. But like, no, I have Lyme disease. I'm like telling him <laughs> what I have. So he got the tests out, the blood test. and he's like, no, here, look, you your Lyme titer is elevated, but it's not Lyme disease levels. And we did the Western blot, and we did these other tests, and you don't have Lyme disease. You have fibromyalgia. So apparently, I have fibromyalgia. You know, newsflash.
0: What is that? And by he the had way? said.
1: Uh, fibromyalgia is, you know, in in a sense, it's kind of like asthma in that it's a collection of symptoms. It's not like something you can quantify, like you can't test someone for asthma, and like, oh, yes, you have this enzyme in your blood, you have asthma. Well, it's the same thing with fibromyalgia. It's not like there's a test for fibromyalgia. It's more a collection of symptoms. The main symptom is, is pain, you know, pain, and there are 18 points on your body that if you touch them with any more than just a little bit of force. I think the force that they say is enough force that if you push your finger down, it's enough to make your fingernail turn white. Mm -hmm. So it's not a ton of force, you know. If you press the point with that, it just causes excruciating pain. And out of these 18 points, 14 of them were enough to make me want to jump out of my skin. And Jerry was with us in the exam and he was was really blown away by it because like you would touch me. An inch away from the pressure point, and, and, and you know you could you could you could punch me at that point, and I wouldn't even notice. And then you would touch me where the pressure point was, and I was screaming; it hurt so bad. And there's a lot of uh, uh, exha- exhaustion is another thing, and I think that has to do a lot with the pain. There is brain fog, confusion, and I had been very confused for the past few years, and now I'm beginning to understand why I had this continuous confusion just really dumb things you know but it's it's definitely real i i mean unfortunately for my friend i i knew someone who had fibromyalgia about 10 years ago so i definitely knew it was a serious and real disease i think some people still insist it's it's not real but those really? people are, are few and far between yeah there are still people who say it's not i mean a, a, a good friend of mine and she meant nothing at all buy it, but when I was going for all this testing, she said, oh, geez, I hope you don't have one of those fake diseases like fibromyalgia, Right. and then when I had it, she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, it's okay. I totally understand what you were saying, but now you know someone with it, so you can't say it's fake anymore. So my doctor mentioned that vitamin D can be very helpful, and they've actually done a lot of tests with vitamin D here in the Twin Cities because we get less sunlight here than in other parts, more southern parts of of the country. You know, we're we're more like Scotland or Scandinavian countries in that way. So vitamin D has, it's been like a miracle. I take uh, 50,000 units a week and it's just has made the biggest change in my pain and my attitude and my ability to just get up and cope. And I've also, uh, I've gone gluten-free. Several people wrote to me and said that they had noticed with their fibro real progress when they cut wheat out. So I've done that. I've been gluten-free now since January 1st. And I've noticed really huge differences in my ability to, to get things done and to think more clearly and especially the pain. And twice I fell off the wagon. I I, I had gluten when I didn't mean to. Once, I, you know, those Reese's peanut butter cup eggs yeah. that they have at Easter. Yeah, I love those. Well, I got one. I actually got two of those. And I scarfed them down so fast you wouldn't have even known I had them. I ate those things so fast your head would spin. And I was sick as a dog. Not sick in my stomach, just I had achiness. I felt like I had a really bad body, achy flu. I was incoherent in my mind. I couldn't think very clearly. And I had ringing in my ears like you wouldn't believe. And it was like, oh, my God, the fibro's back. This is, why am I having this? And then I had to trace back, what did I eat today? But that was peanut butter. And then I looked at the label, and it has whey in it. Oh, So... Most Reese's don't, but the Reese's that are the shapes, like the eggs, those have whey in them. And then a couple of weeks later, I went out for dinner with the family. We went to a Chinese restaurant. I ordered food. I was totally my fault. I wasn't thinking. I got this shrimp dish that I love, not even thinking that the shrimp was breaded, you know, um, because even before we went there I was talking to Jerry and saying, Oh yeah, I can just order like a chicken and vegetable dish or something. You know, I I, I it won't have gluten. I ordered this shrimp and I was just sick for almost two days. So I was sick for two days, but I was sick for almost two days. So um when I told that to my doctor, he said, Well, you know, you might not have realized but what you've just done is basically what allergists would have you do to test for different sensitivities for food. You've you've tested it. it seems like you do have a sensitivity for this. So it's it's been very helpful for me to cut out the gluten and I think if you have to cut out gluten, it's probably a good time to do it because um there are so many great foods out there that are gluten free, which is great. You know, really good uh foods to use in, in place of flour or in place of flour products. And I, I've been trying desperately to lose weight since last August and I've lost about thirty pounds. I'm kind of plateaued because with my health not so great, I don't have the energy like to get out and run around like I'd like to. But the the gluten free's been helpful for that because you know automatically I cut a lot of starch out of my diet. Yes, yeah, so that, that
0: has you know, a pasta yeah,
1: bread, That sort of thing. Of course, it it it's it, it's it's horrifying that I'm I'm gluten free just when I'm going to go to Rome for the first time. That sucks. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> <laughs> well. So I won't be having any of that fine, fine pasta when I'm there, but uh, you know, I, I think I'll live.
0: That's right, cause you're doing uh, more teaching, more touring. Well, you're going to Ireland, aren't you, and Stirling in Scotland and Rome? Yes, yes. I'm coming back to the UK, but I'm going to Ireland,
1: and then I'm going to go to the UK to, to Stirling in, um, in August. So I, the Ireland trip is just a family trip we lucked into a, a nice house exchange adventure with a very nice woman in her family who need to come to St. Paul for a graduation. And and so she asked us if we'd switch and talk to the family about it. And we all took a vote and using up my frequent flyer miles, it seems like an incredibly inexpensive family trip. So we're going to do it. And then That's it's, right. it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. It's And I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it, uh, part of my brain says, well, this is really asinine, you know, Jerry's not working, you're working hard just to make the mortgage, what do you think you're doing, you idiot, to go spend money on a trip to Ireland? And then the other side of my brain says, yes, but you have a really good lesson in front of you about how life can change, and you don't know what the future is going to bring, and it's really important that we're able to do things like this for our kids. And I think it's really important that we're able to create create really good memories like this for the kids. And when all is said and done, I think we're going to be out of pocket about two thousand bucks for three weeks in Ireland. so I think that's pretty good, you know mm-hmm. and it's and and since we discussed this in October, we've been squirreling away money every week, so you know we're 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 those kind of savers. We've had our little Ireland fund, so it makes it a lot less painful that way if you save a little bit at a time.
0: Now, in Stirling, you're going to be teaching at Knit Camp. So what, what's that all about?
1: It's britishyarn.org. That's what it is. That's the website, britishyarn.org. They're bringing in – I swear to God, I look at this list of teachers they have. I'm surprised they haven't, like, exhumed Elizabeth Zimmerman and brought her in because, like, they're bringing everyone else in. They have everybody in knitting is going to be there. It's absolutely amazing. And I'm usually not, like, terribly worried that my classes will sell out, but I'm like – Oh, my goodness, look at all these people. I mean, I wouldn't take my classes. i take her classes and his classes and her classes. So that, that, that's a nice advertisement for myself, isn't it? <laughs> take their class. No, take mine, too. Take my classes. But um, it's going to be amazing. It really is. I, I, everyone I know who's going is just, I mean, we're giddy. We, we get on Google Chat and we chat with each other. And it's just like a series of like 50 happy faces in a row because we can't say anything. We're just so happy to like be going to this place together. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and and while there we all get to see Isolda. That's the main reason everybody's coming to
0: Scotland. We oh, she's it. lovely. I yeah, met so her at she, INet, uh, In one. September when and where I missed you completely because I was hoping to meet up with you, but then you were teaching. I had just missed you though because I I was talking to uh, Isolda and to Jenny of uh, spades at uh, the Fiberspades stand, uh-huh. and I literally just missed you.
1: <laughs> oh. Like you were uh, gone then. Well, said, they're, they're like some of my you, favorite you, people. You, I love them.
0: But you've literally uh, been out of a class, been there for five minutes and then gone back into a class.
1: <laughs> oh Yeah, that, now that was wonderful. That was just a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And INIT did a great job of setting up the classes and making the classrooms. It, just, it was brilliant. It was really one of the nicest teaching experiences I've had. It was wonderful.
0: So, what made it better, just out of interest, than any other? Because um, I've, I've not actually been to a class in a, right. at a, a knitting event, but I'm also thinking that if somebody was going to hold some, um, what would make the ideal kind of classroom space and situation? Um, it's really important to have
1: classrooms that have good light and that are big enough to accommodate all the people that are in them and um it's really great if you're going to put people on different levels like i i mean levels in the building like first floor second floor third floor that there's an elevator because you know if you're teaching knitting you have all these packages with you and suitcases and if you're taking a knitting class you have all these bags with you and even though there were stairs and most people use them i was very happy to see there was an elevator because it's been rough sometimes Th- this is just me also remember i was i at the time i was suffering a great deal of pain and i didn't know why um it's just that the whole atmosphere of the place was very welcoming and very open. And there was a real sense, I felt, of respect toward the teachers, toward all the students who came, and also toward the vendors. It seemed very positive to me. So that's why it seemed like such a great experience. And, but here's one thing I did that I'm pretty impressed with myself about, because obviously I, I impress myself easily. Um, when it became apparent that traveling is going to be difficult for me, you know, as I talk about all the traveling I'm doing. In previous years, I traveled maybe uh uh two trips a month. That was what I was traveling when I was earning you know like decent pay the pay the rent money with Jerry being ill. it was more like one trip a month that would average out to about one maybe one and a half trips a month um but now i I'm only really doing three teaching trips this year at all one to uh, uh Ohio one to Scotland and, and one to Rome. I'm not doing any other trips because I know that's really going to take it out of me. But what I've been doing is I've been offering a lot of my classes online, which is brilliant. And Stephanie, uh, Stephanie Chappelle, who is a wonderful, wonderful knit designer, offered mm-hmm. some classes on teaching online and I took one of her classes and it, it got me very inspired. So I set up a bunch of classes and I've had a lot of students so far. The classes are doing really well. I mean, a couple of them sold out. It was, that was kind of gratifying. I didn't expect how, that to happen.
0: Yeah, how, how does it work then when you have um, a class online? Now, I know it's it's done through the, the Ning network, isn't it? But can tell us a bit more about it, how they work. Yeah, the, the Ning network is
1: great. It's a free online network. And, and I sort of think of it as like, It's as easy to maneuver around as like Facebook or something. It's not really that difficult. And once you're in the network, which is totally free, just like sign up to be in the Ning network, there are different networks going on within there. And so each of my classes is a different network. And I can limit the people who are in the network. So I only allow people in the network who are in that current class. Um, I limit the classes to 20 people unless... Well, I, I have a free How to Knit class just so people can go and experience what it's like to take one of these online classes and if they want to take the free online class they just go to um, onlineknittingclasses.com, and there will be a link there to take the free class and that way you can see what it's like there's a lot of videos there there's pdf handouts sometimes i'll have lectures sometimes i'll do chats i do those with the with the non-free classes because it's i just can't invest all the time into chatting with all the people in the free classes because they have a lot of people in that class, but I'll do online chats and um, work people through whatever problems they're having. I like to think my videos are really uh, very clear. And in a way I, I, I almost enjoy teaching with the videos or I think they're better than teaching in person in the sense that someone can really see the point of view of my hands very clearly and they can run the videos over and over again you know like if they get to yeah. one section they can, and you they can, can pause back. and
0: rewind
1: yeah you can pause and rewind you can't do slow motion which some people have said i really wish you could do that and i kind of wish you could too but you can't um that's something ning doesn't support yet but you can back it up and watch that same thing over and over and I work hard to keep my videos between two to four minutes so they're short enough so you don't have to invest a lot of time. You can just sit down and watch one quickly and then you can watch it again and watch it again so you really can get the technique over and over again.
0: What was it like, by the way, taking – you said you took a class from uh, Stephanie Japp. and I, I interviewed her um, on one of the first casts actually and she's just a really nice lady. Um but what she's was it like the class? It was great. I
1: mean she's she's very personable and she's just a really kind person. She was at the time I took the class it was in the fall and so she was pregnant. She just had her second little girl um, a couple of weeks ago. And so she was kind of winding down her teaching to take a break for her maternity leave. In her class she's more what what she does is she has more face to face videos where she will like t- shoot a video of her talking to you know her students and saying now do this now do that now do this. My videos tend to be more shot over my shoulder showing the techniques. Partly because when I was so sick I couldn't stand I I, I look better now but I looked really bad there for a while and I just couldn't stand the way I looked I didn't want to shoot myself in a video. Um, and partly because I think that that gets what I'm trying to express through a little more clearly. You know, everyone has different, different methods of, of giving their information, yeah. um, but she's she's wonderful. Her classes are very good. She does some very interesting classes. I really, at this point, only have two classes. I, I have been trying to add one class every month. Um, I have my combination knitting class, which is very popular. And then I also do a self-guided version of it, which is $10 cheaper, but there's no chats. So you have all the handouts, you have all the other stuff, there just are no weekly chats. I, I do a chat twice a week with my, with my students. I also am doing a class in my universal mitered handbag. It's a class to make the handbag, obviously, but more important than that, it's a class to teach about the technique of mitering and doing mitered knitting, and there's an awful lot of great tips and just ways to work with mitered knitting. So, you know, ostensibly it's to make the bag, but it really is a a wider class to give you a lot of confidence to go out and do a lot more mitered knitting stuff because it's really
0: fun. Also, are these classes being offered on any particular dates? Because this this podcast is going to go out um, the beginning of April, Actually, probably, possibly April the 1st, which would be a bit strange. Um,
1: Yay, April Fools! Poisson does real, which we had to say in French class. Um, I When I offer the classes, I offer them for a month long. I think that's the easiest way to do it. So in June and May, the only class I'm offering are the self-guided classes because I'm going to be away so much teaching. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm supposed to chat with people, but I can't get like an online connection. So June and May are only going to be the self-guided class. But beginning then in July, I'll be offering all of the classes again with me, you know, live twice a week chatting with people. But I run them for a full month. And that's really more time than someone needs. But I feel like it's very easy for people to remember that. My class is in the month of March. My class is in the month of July. You know, I think that makes it easier.
0: Yeah. Now, something else that you're working on, is a book called History on Two Needles, which is—is is that a history of uh, knitting techniques or? No, it's not, and so I—I think I've—I've that... I've completely yeah. that question because it's not. Is no, it? no, no, hey, well, I, I I'll, I'll rephrase it. I'll rephrase that's it. That's an a brilliant say... question. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm glad you asked it like that. I think it's brilliant. Don't rephrase it. sure? Okay, we'll leave it. <laughs> it's positive. Okay, we'll leave it the same then. <laughs> no, Marie, stop fighting me on this. Um, no,
1: it's. <laughs> It's, you know what, I don't know if the title of the book is very good. And so if anyone has a better suggestion, you can let me know. But um, I've been calling it that. That's the working title, History on Two Needles. Basically, it's not a history of knitting. It's not a history of needles. It's looking at knitted garments that are inspired by historical pieces of artwork. So, I have a dress and a hood that were inspired by the Black Prince's funeral effigy that's, that's in Canterbury Cathedral. Or I have a jacket I'm working on right now that's inspired by a painting of, of a woman wearing a jacket in Elizabethan times. They think it's a painting of Elizabeth, but it hasn't been definitely attributed. Um, so, that's, that's, that's the thing. I, I have a, a, a lovely surplus and shrug that go together a nice surplus with a shrug over it that are based on the little statuette of a minoan snake goddess that they found on the island of crete so uh, there's a a beautiful beautiful statuette in the museum of of, of bologna it's it's an etruscan statuette of a woman bearing offerings and i want to use that as the basis for a, a ruana that i'm going to design so each of the pieces are designed to represent a garment that's in this historical piece of artwork, but, you know, here's the kicker, I want to make them pieces that you would not feel embarrassed to walk down the street wearing. So they're not costumey pieces. I'm not doing things for, like, the Renaissance Fair. These are going to be, you know, fashion pieces that you can wear today, but the inspiration will be very clear. And
0: that's in the works at the moment, isn't it, in in development?
1: it, It is. It is. I have about 16 pieces finished, and I have... Patterns sketched out for all of them, but really written for about five of them. You know, a part of that is laziness, I have to say. And part of it is just my mind, the whole clearness of my mind thing. As the sun comes and summer approaches, I find myself feeling more clear headed. So that's, that's probably very good. And I'll be able to write more patterns. But for me, the real benefit of this, you know, using these, these, um, paintings and using garments from the past, is that the way that we cut our garments and wear them right now? Is not, you know, it, it, it's not like Moses came down, you know, from the mountain with with a, a pattern template in his hand and said, <laughs> "Oh, here, thou shalt always have, you know, yeah. set-in sleeves and, and and a chalk collar." <laughs> that would have been interesting. The, then. <laughs> <laughs> that that's the knitter's bible. Um, no, but but the way that we wear our garments, the way they're tailored now is just the way that it's evolved. And if you look at the way garments were created in the 1850s or the 1750s or the 1720s or the 1530s or the year 890, things were cut differently, cut based on how wide the available fabric was or cut based on you know, their ability to, uh, even create fabric, create fabric so that they could, they could bind the edges of. There's, there's so many things that go into why things were cut and sewn the way they were. And there are some wonderful little touches there, like a, uh, a, a, there's a, a way of forming jackets in the 18, you know, 1830s through the 1860s, you know, and also before and after, but I, I see it mostly there where the seam happened very far down the shoulder in the back. There was no seam in the front. It happened in the back. It wasn't sitting up on the shoulder like we're used to seeing now. It was down the back a little bit. It's an interesting cut, and it can be kind of restrictive in movement in some way because they were not looking for women who could make large hand movements. They wanted a a sense of restricted movement. But it also can create a really lovely silhouette, and when done in knitted fabric you don't have to worry about restrictive movement because knitting stretches you know it's not like i'm doing it out of broadcloth or something so i like to use those those ways of tailoring and those details to add a little bit of interest and maybe to find garments that fit bodies in different ways because you know maybe the way clothes are cut right now is not the most flattering for everybody Mm -hmm. type and and it's part of our job i think is as people who want to look good if if we are indeed people who want to look good, to examine what looks good in our bodies and and you know perhaps you'll find people will find when they read this book, oh, you know what I think that that neckline I think that neckline would look amazing on me, and you know maybe it would look amazing on you i I happen to be someone who looks really good in a square neckline, but some people don't you know it's just people people are different, people have different bodies and I get very frustrated by the universalism of of fashion, the unilateral way that it tries to tell us that, you know, we should wear this or we shouldn't wear that. And we live in an amazing time right now, very amazing, in that at no other time in the history of womankind has it been possible for two women to walk down the street wearing totally different lengths of skirt and both be at the height of fashion. You know, it sounds like a really small thing, but it's not. Because in history – in fashion history, the length of your skirt and and the width of it was often prescribed by what class you were in, how much money you had, what the subtuary laws were where you lived. And now two women can walk down the street of the same, you know, same middle class or whatever, wearing one wearing a mini skirt, one wearing a long skirt, and they could both be at the height of fashion. And I think that's a huge freedom that we have in our in our society right now.
0: It was interesting what you're saying also though about People wearing things that suit them, because I think that's something like. Um, yes. I mean, are you familiar with Trini and Susanna of what not to wear? You know, I am. We
1: have um, we have that TV show here with two other people, two two American yes. people, Clinton and Stacey. And I have seen the British version, and and the women seem um, much firmer. I mean, how, how do I say this? It's not like people in the UK are, are rude, because you're not. You're very very kind and good. But you don't um, you don't suffer fools gladly, you know. But here in the states, yeah. if we didn't suffer fools gladly, we wouldn't have any friends. Um, so no, no, no it's okay. Hi to all my American friends. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so Clinton and
0: Stacey, I think, tend to go a little yeah.
1: easier on people. Well, um, you yeah. Know.
0: Trini and Susanna don't actually present that program anymore. But when they did, they, they were very firm and very upfront about it. But they they're also yes. I think, again, it's just that whole awareness of the fact that, you know, just because, say, one neckline is in fashion doesn't mean that you should wear it because it might not suit you. So if you're wearing something, it looks awful on me. Well, it may very well look awful on you. And perhaps you should try another neckline. People need to. It's kind of useful if people experiment, isn't it, with what suits them?
1: It's wonderful. Experimentation is a beautiful thing. And I think. Sadly, you know, in in clothing and also in knitting styles and anything that we do in life, people get locked in a box. They feel comfortable in the box. They don't want to leave the box. It's a nice box.
0: It has wallpaper like in the box. I like to say,
1: you can always go back to your box. You don't. I'm not going to take your box away, but it's nice to leave the box every now and then and see how someone else is doing something and visit them in their box too. This is this is this is verging <laughs> on, on on almost obscene. But it's important, I think, to break out of how you do things and just change it up every now and then. And when you change it up, I tell people I have my rule of fives, give yourself at least five tries of something new before you judge it or yourself too harshly, before you say, oh, this is stupid or I can't do this. Don't do that right away. Try it at least five times because it takes that long sometimes to get a sense of if you really can or can't do something. Um, we are too easy in our lives to say, "Oh, I can't do that," and and that's just horrible. I think that's well, it's horrible. It's just it's very sad. And um, I, I think it's the same thing when people label themselves and they'll say, "Oh, I can't wear that," or "I I can't do that," or "I I'm not a cabler," "I'm not a lace person." People say that to me all the time. "I'm not a lace person." "I'm not." "I don't do color work." And what I tell them is, and and I got this this phrase from a, a rabbi friend of mine, what I tell them is, go ahead and say that. Say, I'm not a lace person. I don't do lace, whatever. Just do yourself a favor and add yet to the end of it. And that leaves the door open. And then, you know, a year from now, when you see a lace sweater that you must have, you will not have mentally closed this door on the magical world of lace. Because what you would have been saying internally and to other people is, I don't do lace yet, and and I think that really does mentally do something to leave the door open, so you can walk through that door later. And if something, a sweater is like a sweater is like a love affair. If you fall in love with it and you must have it, you will overcome anything to make it work
0: for you. It's it's a matter of love. The ever delightful and hilarious Annie Modisette. Well, as you probably heard at the beginning of the show, KnitCast now has a theme tune. It's called Knit Away, and it's by Stephen Wheel. Stephen has very generously allowed me to use it, so thanks to him and also to his other half, Amy, who's another Cardiff knitter, for asking Stephen in the first place. There'll be a link to Stephen's website and also to the things that Annie and I talked about over at www.knitcast.com. A technical issue has is been brought to my attention that in recent editions, so the two last editions, basically had the interviewee on one channel, so, for example, on the left side, with me, with my voice, appearing on the, the right-hand side because it's a stereo recording. Now, this appears to be an issue with the Pamela Core recording software, which I use to record the Skype interviews. So what I'm going to do from now on is try and encode the uh, mp3s as mono to see if that solves the problem it should do i will in time basically recode the uh, the last two editions so those will be mono as well but uh, please be patient with me on that one if you're a member of ravelry you might be interested to know that there's now a nitcast group so that's somewhere where you can give your feedback on the uh, editions you can raise questions like the technical issue uh, as people have and you can you know, leave me messages, etc. So go to www.ravelry.com for that. But you can still leave messages for me on the NickCast blog. So that's www.nickcast.com You can email me, feedback at nickcast.com uh, You can tweet me on Twitter. So that's twitter.com forward slash NickCast. Well, I'll be back with you on May the 1st. But until then... I'm Marie Urschard and that was NickCast. Thanks for listening.